0: Um, We are in a a topical series for the next couple of weeks on offenses. In our evening series in Luke 17, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus presented two principles of interaction among believers. The verses told us this in, in Luke chapter 17. I guess I don't need to click anything, do I? The verses told us this in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Then said He unto His disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. We saw two standards of interaction. The first standard being a a standard of interaction about offenses, regarding offenses between the brethren. And then the second is a standard of forgiveness, which plays very well uh, after a standard of offenses, right? If, a, if, if a, you, you dare not offend a brother, and then how to forgive a brother when there is a trespass against you. If you'd like more information about uh, those particular concepts, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon in Luke 17. It's up on YouTube. It's at LegacyBaptistChurch.net for our podcast But the idea of offenses, the concept of offenses in the scripture, which is what we're speaking of this morning, is the concept of causing a person to stumble in their faith. The word there literally meaning to cause to stumble. And the idea is that you are causing a person to stumble in their faith. Now, in regard to offenses, Jesus taught that it is inevitable that offenses will come. There will be stumbling blocks to faith in this world. It is inevitable. But Jesus says, Woe unto those through whom they come. There will always be people seeking to overthrow the faith of others, or there will always be concepts which will overthrow the faith of others, confuse others in their faith, muddy the waters of faith. But let it never be said for you and I as followers of Christ that we would be the cause of causing another to stumble in their faith. Better, Jesus says, to have a millstone, a very large heavy stone that they use to grind uh, flour and wheat. Better to have that hung around your neck and you to be cast into the sea. Better for you to be eternally separated from people than that you would cause them to stumble in their faith. And so we're going to cover this concept of offenses over the next two weeks. This week we're going to cover what I'll call offenses against truth. And this is where a person actually causes another to stumble in regard to their understanding of the truths of God's Word, sound doctrine. Um, There are two categories that we'll talk with with offenses to truth. There's believers who offend truth, and then there's the actual wolves in sheep clothing that offend the truth. And so this morning's message will be a little bit more of a warning message. And then next week, that's going to be a big one. We're going to talk about a principle in Scripture called the weaker brethren principle. And that is offenses against faith. That's where we as brethren are causing others to stumble, not necessarily even through not knowing enough, being a novice or or being led astray by a false doctrine, but simply through our lack of compassion or love, our unwillingness to bind ourselves in love to the needs of our brethren. So this week will be offenses against truth. Next week will be offenses against faith. And as we begin talking about offenses against truth, what we mean by this are actions and words which cause people either to reject the gospel or to reject certain elements of the faith. Actions are words which cause people to live a misrepresented faith, to think they're doing right, but are actually spiritually imbalanced because their theology, maybe in major points, maybe just in minor points, or maybe in non-existent points, points that we've made up for ourselves, uh, have become confused, imbalanced, muddied. The first most obvious, most deeply chastised element of offenses in regard to faith are false teachers, the wolves in sheep's clothing. These are those who are noticeably, obviously out there seeking to destroy the faith of others for personal gain. But I actually want to start this morning with a group of people that are not necessarily as malicious. They're people who we'll call novices. They're believers, but at some point they became imbalanced in their faith. And they taught things that can overthrow the faith of others. Or they're teaching things that can overthrow the faith of others. And you're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're looking at verses 20 and 21. The Bible says this. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. As Paul warns Timothy here, and we'll find that many of these novice warnings are actually in the pastoral epistles, which we would expect because this is a contention between, uh, or it's, it's teaching Timothy how to, how to be a good pastor and dealing with the potential of contention between Timothy as a pastor and maybe others who would seek to represent Christ. Paul lists two primary devices of these novice teachers which reflect danger in the faith, causing others to err to be an error concerning the faith. Many of these people, these novices, they aren't in it for the money. They've become deeply imbalanced in their own understanding of the Bible. They've allowed error to creep into their own way of thinking, and then they lead others astray as they teach this line of thinking. We're not talking here, take note, about Christians who simply disagree. If I were to poll the people in this room on various uh, standards, doctrinal thoughts, doctrinal ideas, there are going to be differences in this room. Things which we can agree to disagree about. Things which don't necessarily threaten our unity, our general love for the Lord. Things which uh, aren't separation worthy. There are always going to be those things. There are There's room for disagreement about elements of doctrine or practice. Not because God in heaven sees gray areas, for indeed with God all things are black and white, but because we have limited knowledge, limited understanding, because we are limited. Whenever we recognize a problem with doctrine, whenever there's a controversy surrounding doctrine, here's what we know. Either somebody is twisting something purposefully to get people to follow them, or there's a misunderstanding that is not a misunderstanding that God wrote into the book, but a misunderstanding that we've written into the book, we've interpreted into the book. In other words, if there's a problem with your Bible, the problem's not with the Bible, it's with us. The problem's with us. So the concepts we'll speak about today are not these genuine disagreements where we disagree, where we can have a a, a good discussion and try to find the truth as we seek the Lord together. We're talking about novice teachers who are swayed, confused, and distracted by things which don't matter, which do not profit, which are outside of sound doctrine. So Paul charges Timothy with these words. He says, keep that which is committed to thy trust. As a pastor, it was Timothy's responsibility to guard the faith, to guard the truth. Pastors have been committed the trust of the truths of Scripture. And it's a dangerous breach of trust when a pastor goes outside of those truths. And his first warning here in 1 Timothy 6 verse 20 is about profane and vain babblings. The word profane means irreverent of sacred things. Vain babbling speaks of that which is fruitless, meaningless, empty discussion. That whether among those who represent the faith or those who do not, Paul says to avoid those things which are irreverent in regard to the sacred. Mockery, corruption, shock value. These things don't, don't have a place in sound doctrine. This irreverence causes men and women to wander from the faith. To see sound doctrine is less important than it needs to be. In 1 Timothy 4.7, just a few chapters earlier, Timothy warned to refuse profane and old wives' tales, he called them, and rather to exercise ourselves unto godliness. We're going to approach this at the end of our time together today. But the idea here, in each of these warning passages, whether we're warning against novices who have become imbalanced and misrepresent the faith, or whether we're talking about false prophets, false teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing, who actually go out of their way to distort the faith for their own personal gain. Those who don't even understand the the realities of Scripture because they're not in the faith. Regardless of which one we're talking about, what we'll find is that the Bible gives a very strong foundation as to what we ought to focus on. And we'll come to that at the end of our time today. So, Timothy warns, or Paul warns Timothy against profane and vain babblings, messages which have nothing to do with godliness or character, whether this is the man who just gets up in the pulpit to pick fights, or to tell stories, or to give his opinions, whether it's a man who's irreverent about the things of God, who's irreverent about the elements of the Word of God, who mocks and tears down those in the faith who don't see eye to eye with him. Paul says to Timothy, avoid these things. He says, avoid speaking words that have no profit unto true godliness. Avoid speaking words which distract from the gospel, rather than establishing or supporting the gospel. The gospel. Paul also warns Timothy against the opposition of what he calls science, falsely so-called. Now, the Greek word translated here, science, is simply the word knowledge. And that makes sense because science literally means knowledge. Now, in today's age, science has become uh, almost anti-knowledge, hasn't it? Uh, the science, we would call it today, the field, effectively pseudoscience. It is a religion unto itself that uses the guise of science in order to lead people into error that lead people astray, lead people farther from the truth. It's a fine translation to use the word science here, but the term is broader as it would be translated in the Greek. The term is simply knowledge, falsely so-called knowledge. Here's the thing about truth. Here's the thing about knowledge. There is no knowledge outside of truth. There is no knowledge outside of truth, and there is no truth outside of God. What did Jesus say in John fourteen six? I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? There is no truth. All truth conforms itself to God's design, conforms itself to God's character. To this end, Paul calls it knowledge, falsely so-called. He would not only have been speaking out against what we would call science today, the pseudoscience, a systematic study of the physical and natural world which has been corrupted by man's desire to kill God, but any knowledge that exalts itself against the truth of God and against the truth of His Word. Whether that be our science, pseudoscience, whether that's a religion unto itself, whether that's the false religious practices, the term in the day was Gnosticism, secret knowledge, the idea that you have to work yourself up in a system of, of religion in order to gain more knowledge of God. Folks, God has given us the knowledge of Him right here. He's given us... It's not not hidden. It's not secret. I don't have to know a code. I don't have to read between the lines. God has given us Himself. We don't have a secret knowledge. We don't have a a secret religion. We're not in some sort of special secret club where you have to become a club and you have to get to the 5th degree, the 10th degree, the 33rd degree of that club in order to get the secret knowledge that you need to be, be one with God. God has given us what we need to know of Him in His Word, and He has revealed it unto us through His Spirit, which He has made available to every man. So Paul says, knowledge, false knowledge, irreverent, useless teaching, these are things that cause people to err from the faith. They're not intentionally false teachers, many seeking to lead people into a false system, But rather, these people were novice teachers, dealing in matters that they knew little about, allowing themselves to get distracted by things which don't really matter or speak against things that they simply don't understand. And as they err from the faith, they lead others with them. They cause offenses to the faith of those who hear them. And Jesus tells us that these offenses must come. It is inevitable that these offenses must come. That the vain and profane babblings are going to happen, folks. That the false knowledge, which is outside the knowledge of Christ, it's out there and it's going to be out there and it's going to float around and it's always going to be there. But let it not be once named among us. But woe unto those by whom these offenses come. What's the solution? Stick to the book. Stick to the book. It'd be better, Jesus says, that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be cast into the sea than that you would offend a, a brother in Christ turn with me if you would to second timothy chapter 2 just a few pages over paul would say a similar thing in second timothy 2 beginning in verse 14 he commands timothy this he says of these things put them in remembrance charging them before the lord that they strive not about words to no profit but to the subverting of hearers Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun vain, profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. So Paul begins by calling Timothy to teach men not to argue over things that don't really matter much. There's a lot of this in the church today, isn't there? There's a lot of arguing over things that just don't really matter too much. Stop nitpicking. Stop nitpicking. Stop majoring on the minors. Now, that doesn't mean we, again, that doesn't mean we can't debate theological differences or contest our different viewpoints among ourselves in a manner that is right, in a manner that is humble, in a manner that is kind, listening, unified. That's the process, that process of disagreement and discussion that makes us all get better, doesn't it? The process of somebody coming up to me after the service and saying, Hey, Pastor Wickler, did you think of this? I had someone come up after the evening service last week and say, Pastor, I appreciated what you said tonight, but have you thought about this in regard to prayer? The message was on persevering prayer. Have you thought about this angle? You said this, and I feel like that, that could be a cause for somebody to misinterpret through this. And, and, and it was very helpful to me. And that's a good thing. And we discussed it a little bit. That's a great thing. No man is perfect. No man understands things perfectly perfectly least of all your pastor. So we need that. But there's a big difference between discussing and striving, isn't there? There's a big thing between me saying this is what I think and you saying that's what you think and us seeking the Spirit of God and us seeking the Word of God to find the truth of the Scriptures and me saying, no, I'm right, you're wrong. This is what I think. You need to believe me. And you saying, no, I'm right, you're wrong. This is what I think and you need to believe me and us just fighting over it if we allow the things that don't matter so much to divide us or make such major points that it shifts our focus away from the realities of the gospel and its extended principles, then we fall out of balance. If our church becomes a church that is fighting some theological difference instead of contending for the gospel, then we've got a big problem in our church, don't we? If now we're a church that 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 pro- proposes some... Theological system, rather than proposing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got a big problem. We're out of balance. Paul says, put them into remembrance that they don't strive about words to no profit. Because it can overthrow the faith of some. Subverting the hearers, he calls it. Paul states that the only real profit of these debates and arguments is to subvert the hearers, causing those who listen to get confused or to be divided among themselves, to become imbalanced in their own spiritual lives or to see the church as fundamentally dysfunctional and so to reject everything the church represents, including the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Causing people to lose focus on the things that matter most, knowing the gospel, sharing the gospel, living the gospel. And so I think that because I know things and because I've got this nice, tight theological argument that that makes me a good Christian instead of sharing the gospel and knowing the gospel and living the gospel, which is our calling. So, Paul says here in verse 15, study, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Dividing it properly. Focusing on what matters. Study it. Understand what the word of God says. Focus on the major points that the Bible focuses on. Keep the main thing the main thing. Rightly divide the word of truth. That's the call of the believer. And then he continues. uh, Verse 16 I already read, but let's read it again. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So Paul warns against, again, these profane, irreverent, vain babblings. The same thing that we saw in 1 Timothy. That as people entertained these claims, these thoughts, these these words that have no profit, this imbalance, it increased unto more ungodliness. They replaced humility. And the humility of the gospel with the pride of exclusivity, causing people to think that they have all the answers and that everyone else is somehow inferior. They replace the grace with judgmentalism, causing people to look at others and think that they're better than them. They replace obedience with just academic knowledge, making people think that the Christian life is about what you know rather than what you do out of a love for the Lord. Paul warns that these things eat like a canker. They're subversive. It's like cancer in the church. It causes the church to get confused, to be led astray, some to reject the faith, to be weakened in their faith. It adds confusion where there should be clarity. In the example which Paul gives here, he uses the example of two men named Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says they erred from the true faith because they were teaching that the resurrection, that would be the resurrection of the believers, right, the the dead in Christ, had already passed. To this end, they began teaching a false doctrine, what I might call a conspiracy doctrine, and it overthrew the faith of the less discerning, who listened and who said, this is a pretty good argument, I'm going to follow this argument. And rather than majoring on the things that Christ has called us to major on in this day, which is to preach the gospel and to wait for the coming, which, by the way, when He comes, you'll know. You'll know. It won't be, uh, these people are saying he's coming, these people are saying he hasn't, and there's a debate. No, no, you'll know. You'll know, right? So we don't have to to fight over that. (laughs) You'll know. It hadn't come yet. The resurrection hadn't taken place yet of of the, the believing dead. And it overthrew the faith of some. They went along with these presuppositions and became confused. And all of a sudden they start questioning everything and they don't know where to go and they say, wow, why didn't I know this before? And what is this? And, and how do I get more of this knowledge? If, I, if I'm not going to read it in the Bible, then where am I to read this? Have you ever met someone like that? Where they hear something and it throws them off and all of a sudden they start reading, re- reading and becoming just so into the words of men rather than the words of God and everything gets confused and they get off on this big rabbit trail and now it's all about knowledge and it's all about what people know and don't know rather than what God has said. That's the danger here. And it's an offense against believers. It overthrows the faith of some. And Jesus says, look folks, these things are going to happen. It's out there. Again, this is kind of the warning message. Next week will be a more of an exhortation message. But folks, these, these offenses are out there, but God forbid that they should be named among us. God forbid that someone should be offended in their, in, in their understanding of the truth that they should stumble in their faith because of us. It'd be better, Jesus says, that a millstone be hung about his neck and he be cast into the sea than that the faith of others might be offended by subversive, profane, vain babblings, vain teachings, things that do not profit in our churches. Keep turning to Titus, if you would, please. Chapter 3. Beginning in verse 9, Paul writing to Titus now, another pastor, he says this, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable in vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. Foolish questions about things that don't matter. He lists some of them here. Genealogies, false teachings that care about bloodlines and family groups. The scriptures say we are all one in Christ. That stuff doesn't matter. Contentions, those who seemingly seemingly exist in the church simply to argue with others about nuances. Strivings about the law, those who insist to nitpick the particulars of a believer's obligations to law and to standards and their liberties in Christ. Again, we'll talk about that next week when we talk about the weaker brethren principle. These are examples of people that are causing offenses in the church. Their message is unprofitable and vain. They're striving about words that have no profit unto godliness. They're nitpicky things which, once again, if you hold, if you want to care about, that's fine but don't make them an issue of disputation in the church. Don't make them points of division. Don't make them focal points of your church's perspective. You say, Pastor, why are you telling us not to make these focal points? You're the pastor. Yes, I'm the pastor. But we're the church. We're the church. We're what gets out of balance, not just me. Right? And so we need this. Paul says to reject the man who is an heretic after the first and second admonition. There had been two primary admonitions in the book of Titus to this point. The first admonition was to live in uh, is to, to live sound doctrine. We preached about that not too long ago in the, in Titus two, that the elderly men and the elderly women and the young men and the uh, young women and the young men and, and their responsibility in the family and this in the church. Sound doctrine. And then the second admonition was to live in humility and submission one to another. Paul says those who hold views that are contrary to this, those who through subversion, through nitpicking, through imbalance, are not submitting one to another, are not living sound doctrine, you need to reject them. You need to reject their influence in the church because they are subverted. They have been subverted and they will subvert others because error spreads. Their offenses against the truth, and rather than rejecting those who think slightly different from us, Paul exhorts Titus to reject those who focus on these differences in order to subvert the simplicity of the gospel and the clear teachings of the truth, because they're unprofitable, they're vain, they bring about foolish questions that cause the church to get mired in confusion and in and in, in things that just don't matter. They tear the church apart rather than knit it in unity. We need to watch out for this. It ought not be once named among us because Jesus said, Woe unto those by whom the offenses come. It would be better, Jesus said, that a millstone be hung about his neck and that he be cast into the sea. So we've talked about novices this morning. These are those which in general we would say they're generally not malicious. They're misguided. They're genuine people, generally speaking, who are imbalanced and so are subverting the faith of others through petty partisanism, introducing confusion where there should be clarity, uh, not submitting. Uh, they're, They're seeking to overthrow the faith of others, to bring others to their cause and so to add confusion. They introduce complication where there should be simplicity. They're generally believers who have swam beyond their depth and so they cause problems in the church. That would be a lot of what we might get ourselves into if we're not careful as a group that is mostly believers in here today. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, then you're a believer. If you have not, then, then you're not. The Bible tells us. There is a second category though, and this is the one that we often think of when we think of false teaching. And this, these are the, the false prophets, the Bible regularly calls them, or the wolves in sheep clothing. These are men and women who are not believers. They're not believers. They know exactly what they're doing. They know the truth, but they have not accepted the truth. They know things about the Bible, but they have never experienced the regeneration that is found by salvation, by grace through faith, and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. They are zealous oftentimes about teaching things about the Bible. They are passionate oftentimes about biblical morality or elements of biblical morality, but they have never left the world to follow Christ. Like the Pharisees in the New Testament who were men of tremendous morality who had all of their ducks in a row but were as far from Christ as they could possibly be. These are men and women who might be the best religious and moral examples among us, but they are unbelievers. They have no understanding of the grace that is in Christ. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They have rejected the gospel and their teachings lead others to reject the gospel as well. There are offenses against the truth. And the warnings about these sorts of people in the scriptures are very, very strong. These men and women cause people to believe a false faith, to follow a false faith, and so offend the faith of many as they offend the truth of God. So I'm going to have you turn back to 1 Timothy. We're going to... Stay in the pastoral epistles for a while, but we will venture outside of them this time. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Paul tells us that the Spirit has spoken very clearly on this, that in the last days, the latter times in which we reside... Some will depart from the faith. They have departed entirely. This is not a novice who is splitting hairs, bringing confusion where there should be clarity, bringing confusion to the gospel, bringing confusion to what it means to live a life of Christ, bringing confusion to what it means to be Spirit-led. We have so much of that in the church today that our church is very weak, it's impotent, because our church is confused. But this is that extra layer. These are those who claim to represent Christ, but they have departed from the faith. They are apostates. This is the man who listens to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 1 John 4 tells us that there are many spirits in the world that we need to discern the spirits, whether they be of God. There are many philosophies, teachings, and ideologies which will attempt to enter into the church and and to the church's operation in contradiction to the truths of God's Word. Not just nitpicking differences about Bible doctrines, but heresies, apostasy, cults. Apostate arms of the church, those who call themselves Christians, but whose understanding, whose philosophies, whose teachings reflect rather a pagan worship system. These men and women live out hypocritical lives. They represent themselves as something they are not. They clothe they their evil in Christian language, in Christian culture. They make subtle changes which alter the truths of God into the lies of the devil. They have seared consciences, the text tells us. They live and teach in contradiction to God and they do it in the name of God and they don't even mind. They do it with passion and with confidence because their consciences have been seared. So much confidence and passion they teach with that many are swept away in their charisma and their passion. The warning in 1 Timothy is specifically against those who would pervert the doctrines of the faith in a legalistic direction. He says, commanding to abstain from meats which God hath given, God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. They command them to not marry though God has given marriage and uh, called us to receive it with thanksgiving. The Spirit tells us that these men and women exist, that they'll exist more and more as the days continue, but that it ought not be once named among us. Because woe unto, whom, unto those by whom these offenses come. It would be better, Jesus says, that a millstone be hung around his neck and he be cast into the sea, than that he should offend a little one. Back into 2 Timothy, if you would, chapter 3. This is weird. I actually have time to take a drink. I'm not. I'm asking you to turn. I, I'm, not, I'm not used to this. Normally, going here. Second Timothy three verses one through eight. This snow also Paul writes to Timothy, that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Notice what he says at the end of verse 5. From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses So do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. What's interesting about this description of false teachers is that they are, by Paul's own admission, reprobate. Concerning the faith. And yet they have a form of godliness. They just deny the power thereof. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. They have a form of godliness, but they're resisting the power of godliness. They're resisting the gospel. Their minds are not on the gospel. Their minds are not on grace. They have a form of godliness, but they pervert The gospel, they're ever learning, they're ever studying, they're ever digging deeper. They've ever got something new to tell you, but it's empty. They never bring their knowledge to their understanding, their, their study to the knowledge of the truth. The list of characteristics which describe them reveal the corruption of their minds. That they will be a part of this kind of a society that has fallen away from the things of God. What Timothy call, or what Paul calls perilous times. Men that are living entirely for themselves, justifying a form of godliness while simultaneously representing everything that is anti God in their lifestyle. They love themselves, they're covetous, they want what is not theirs, they're boasters, they're proud. They blaspheme. They disobey their parents. They're unholy. They're unthankful. Without natural affection. That's the idea of the sexual relationship that has gone beyond a man and a woman. They're truce breakers. They don't keep their word. You can't trust people anymore. They're liars. And it doesn't matter that they lie. Nobody cares that they lie. Everybody lies, right? You can't trust anything that comes out of anyone's mouth. This is, these are the characteristics. But, but, but what, what else do they have? They have a form of godliness. They'll still claim the name of Christ. But they've denied the power thereof. These are false. These people are false. And as they live this way and claim Christ, others look and they say one of two things. Either, oh, I can follow Christ and live this way, good. Good. Or they say, if that's what it means to follow Christ, I don't want anything to do with it. And so the, the faith of some is offended. And Jesus says, offenses will come. Those people are out there, and they're going to be out there, folks. We can't stop it. But God forbid that it should ever be named among us. It would be better that a millstone be hung around our neck and we be cast into the sea and that we should offend the faith of a brother or sister in Christ. We're going to go outside of the, epi- the pastoral epistles now. Keep turning toward the end of your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're almost here in our Tuesday night study learning in depth, verse by verse, line by line about this. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, we read this, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, "...whose judgment now of long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not." Let's continue. "...for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the uh, the world of the ungodly, and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow..." Making them an ensample unto those that afterwards should live uh, after, excuse me, should live ungodly, and deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord, but these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that counted a pleasure to riot in the daytime." Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way, and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Bosor who loved the wages of unrighteousness but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantedness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error." While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. A larger passage of Scripture. But the idea is this. Unbelieving men, unbelieving women, using Christian-sounding terms, Christian-sounding ideas and concepts to promise men a liberty that they know nothing about They reside in bondage to their natural man, in bondage to the lusts of this world, but they preach the liberty of the spiritual man. But because they don't understand the spiritual man, they preach the carnal, dressed up in a garb of religion and philosophy and moralism. But the way of truth is unknown to them because they love the wages of unrighteousness. Peter says that there are spots in the church's feast as they fellowship among you. They are blemishes in the church because they're not actually in the church, but they're among us. But they, rep- they seek to represent Christ among us, pretending to be one of us, but absolutely ignorant of the true and liberating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we could spend our time today identifying all of those false teachers I could run down a list of people that are false teachers. I could run down a list of those who are novices. And I've mentioned names before of people that I believe are novices, those who are believers but that they're, they're, they're pastors who are very misguided. I've mentioned before the names of some who I would believe are, are wolves in sheep's clothing. But that really isn't the point. There is a warning element to this message. But what I'd like to do instead, instead of giving you all the names of all those to warn you about, instead of warning you about all of the different errors, can I just tell you what the Bible says about the truth? And then you, knowing the truth, can discern the error through the Spirit of God. So we're going to learn about grace. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, going back that direction... Told you it was a bad message to not have my slides. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Have you look at verse 23. What really matters, folks? What is it that we should be preaching? What is it that we should be teaching? What is it that we should be living? What is it that matters? If if we are to avoid the vain and the profane and the babbling and the words to no profit and the nitpicking and the confusion, and if we're certainly to avoid the false teaching that's all dressed up in the garb of moralism or all dressed up in the garb of religion or all dressed up in the garb of of philosophy or ideology, then what is it that we should be be, be focusing on? We already considered... Uh, we've already considered several passages, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26, we read this. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strives, strife, we've already covered that. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. What really matters, folks, is that we maintain a fervent passion not to strive over that which has little profit, but rather to gently, patiently, and meekly reflect the gospel to, a, to, to the world. Now... On the one end, we have the unbeliever. We are to reflect the gospel to a lost and dying world. On the other hand, we have the believer who is intended to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For that purpose, whether unbeliever or unbeliever, we are not to strive, but we're to be patient, apt to teach that we might, through this patient, enduring teaching of sound doctrine, win them. Win them to what? Turn to Titus 3. Just before the warnings about false teachings in Titus 3, we read this, beginning in verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves were sometime foolish disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That, here it is, that was the gospel. Now what? That being justified by His grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Notice the contrast between what Titus chapter 3, verses 1-8 through 8 says is good and profitable and that which has no profit. The nitpickings and the strivings and the confusion and the moralism and the religiosity as opposed to what? Get your mind off yourself. Put your mind on God. Walk with the Lord in simplicity and sincerity. Be abiding in Christ. And so be ready unto good works. Don't speak evil of men. Don't be ready to fight. Be meek unto others. Show the difference. You were sometime foolish. You were sometime disobedient. You were sometime hateful. But now you're in Christ. Don't want that anymore. Reflect instead this beautiful character of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, alienated from a relationship with God. Let's talk about the gospel for a few moments. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is perfect. We are sinful. God is holy. We are unrighteous. God cannot have fellowship a holy God cannot have fellowship with a sinful creation. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I work, no matter how good I try to be, I have sinned. I am fallen short of the glory of God. I am separated from God already. So God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, had never once sinned, had never done anything wrong, he was a perfect man and so was not separated from god and the bible says that as a perfect man who had never separated who had never been separated from god in fellowship he submitted himself unto death even the death of the cross and on the cross second corinthians 5:21 says god made god the father made god the son jesus christ to be sin for us who knew no sin God took your sin and my sin. We read about it in Sunday school in Galatians 3 this morning. Jesus was made a curse for us. God took your sin and my sin and He poured it out on Jesus and Jesus was cursed. And Jesus felt the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. So that, by God's grace, the righteousness of Jesus Christ could be placed on us. So the Bible says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son and allowed his son to suffer that death so that we would not have to. But the Bible says we have to receive it. The end of the second half of John 3:16 that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gift has been purchased. It was purchased 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And yet, it's a gift that has to be received. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. I've given the illustration before. Imagine a man who strings a tightrope across a raging river. And the people gather around to see him walk across this raging river and he begins to walk across that raging river and he walks across and he walks back and he never even once flinches. And the crowds are amazed. And he gets a wheelbarrow and he takes that wheelbarrow and he walks it across the tightrope and he walks it back and he doesn't even flinch and the crowds are amazed. And he gets 200 pounds of flour and he takes those sacks of flour and he puts them in the wheelbarrow. And he walks that wheelbarrow across the tightrope and he walks it back and he doesn't even flinch and the crowds are amazed. And he looks at the crowds and he says, how many of you believe that I could get you across, a live person, you across on the wheelbarrow? And everyone raises their hand. Of course, he just got all that weight across. Of course he could get me across. And he said, all right, who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow? That's a different question, isn't it? That's a different question. When Paul spoke of the gospel, he described salvation as repentance from dead works and faith towards God, setting aside everything and anything that I might believe in that could get me to heaven and putting my soul, faith, and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, belief alone, the gospel alone, to secure me a right relationship with God and a home in heaven. In other words, it's not enough just for me to know that Jesus has done this for me. I've got to get in the wheelbarrow, folks. That's what it means to accept the gospel it means no plan B. It means I am putting my full faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. But He didn't just die on the cross, did He? The Bible says three days later, He rose again in victory over sin and over the grave. And because He's a living Savior, if He's alive, so too can we be. A dead Savior can't do anything for me as far as life goes. A dead Savior can't give me eternal life. If I can go worship at the bones of my Savior, He's no Savior. But He's alive. He's alive. And because He's alive, everything that He promised about us being alive can be true as well if we'll put our faith in it. That's the Gospel. What are we to be focusing on? We focus on the Gospel. We focus on living it. We're to be men and women of peace, to be gentle, to be meek, knowing that at one time we were foolish and disobedient and deceived. And it is our privilege to lead others to the light as we've been led to the light. To declare the grace of God which has been given to us to show the world what that grace means. Because these things are good and profitable unto men. Not genealogies, not questions, not controversies, not definitions, not nuances, not strivings. We can have these, but when they become the focal point, we've gotten out of balance. Folks, love God Live for God. Represent God to a lost and dying world. Live out the gospel. Live out what he saved you from. That's what matters. That's what the church is supposed to be. Offenses against truth. Two warnings this morning. Warning number one, beware of the imbalance in your faith or in your church. We need to be looking for and being careful about imbalances in our church. We need to guard balance because balance matters. We need to know the Gospel. We need to love the Gospel. We need to maintain good works. We need to be an example to the world of the Gospel. We need to always default to love, not anger, hate or retaliation. Always default to patience. Always default to forgiveness. Always default to understanding. Always default to meekness and to humility because that is Christ. And when things get out of balance, when the major becomes minor and the minor things become major, there's a problem. Whether that's in your life, whether that's in your family, whether that's in our church, there's a problem. And we need to root out those problems and find balance once again. We need to guard it because when we get out of balance, we run the risk of overthrowing the faith of others. And it would be better for us that a millstone were hung about our necks and we were cast into the sea than that we overthrow the faith of a fellow brother or sister in Christ or certainly one who is searching for that salvation in, in faith. So we need to be beware of imbalance in our faith or in the church. Second, we need to beware of those who would misrepresent the gospel. This is far more serious. Men and women in this world claiming Christ in some form but denying the Lord who bought them men and women who lead well-meaning people into a false gospel, who convince people that they can maintain their love for themselves and the world simultaneously uh, with following Christ. This Christ is not the Christ of the Bible. It's a false Christ. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And all of this, why? Why? Why do we need to be aware of an imbalance? Why do we need to be aware of false teachers in the church? What should we be looking for? We should be looking for grace. We should be looking for the gospel. We should be looking for those who are following the tenets of Christ. And the reason why is because God is jealous over the truth, folks. He desires that all men would know Him through knowing His word. And if you're in Christ, He's jealous over you. He wants your heart, He wants your loyalty, and He wants you to follow the truth. God wants us to know the truth. God wants us to love the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is enough of an offense to the sensibilities of men without us adding further offenses. And so my prayer for today, as we go from here, is a prayer that Paul made for the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 1. This is my prayer for Legacy Baptist Church. He wrote this in verses 9 through 11. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge, in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things which are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ Unto the glory and praise of God. Is that you today? Is that an accurate description of your life? Approving that which is excellent, sincere, and without offense, filled with the fruits of righteousness? If it's not, you're out of balance. Would you ask the Spirit of God to help guide you into where you've gone wrong and to find it and then root it out today? Is that a description of your family? That you're approving things which are excellent, that you're growing in knowledge, that you're sincere and without offense, that you're filled with the fruits of righteousness. Is that what a day in, day out looks like in your family? If not, would you root it out? Would you find out what's wrong and make it right? Is that what our church looks like? Are we abounding yet more and more in knowledge and in judgment, approving that which is excellent? Are we sincere and without offense and filled with the fruit of righteousness? If not, let's find out why. And let's get it right. Because these are the things that really matter. These are the things that lay up treasure in heaven. These are the things that protect us from being a kind of person, family, or church that might cause offense to another believer in Christ, that might cause offense to an unbeliever who would interact with us. May that description be us here at Legacy Baptist Church.